the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering this afternoon. In the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with David Taylor. He's the author of Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. He'll join us again in the second hour of today's program. Well, it's been quite a challenge to keep up with all the news today. Oregon Governor Kate Brown held a press conference just moments ago in which she ordered Oregon restaurants and bars to stop all on-site dining and limit sales to takeout and delivery. Additionally, during the news conference, the governor said that she plans to ban gatherings of more than 25 people for at least a month, while urging Oregonians to avoid being around more than 10 people at a time. Exemptions to the closure list include grocery stores, pharmacies, retail stores, and workplaces. Can your business do the equivalent of restaurant takeout? She asked. If you cannot do that, I strongly urge you to close your doors to customers temporarily. Well, that decision came hours after the governor announced that she was not ready to impose a curfew or border shutdown on bars and restaurants, despite new federal recommendations against gatherings of 50 or more. Meanwhile, dozens of restaurants announced voluntary closures and more than 100 chefs, bartenders, bakers, winemakers and more signed an open letter asking the governor to order a blanket closure. Well, Portland area restaurants, including the upscale vegan restaurant Farm Spirit, the modern Jewish deli Beetroot and the Seattle-based steakhouse chain El Gaucho began announcing dining room closures last week most with plans to test out more takeout and delivery services. Then on Sunday, the major domino fell when one of Portland's most prominent restaurant groups, Chef's Table, um, announced all 20 of its restaurants and bars would close, with some continuing to offer food to go via takeout or delivery. Now, by the time the governor made her announcement, dozens of other restaurants and bars had joined that list of closures. So again, uh, the highlights of the, the uh, governor's announcement just moments ago, gatherings of 25 or more are banned. People are encouraged to not participate in groups of 10 or more. Restaurants are barred from providing inside dining uh, for at least four weeks. Uh, They can operate uh, with delivery or takeout orders. The governor noted that violating the restrictions is a misdemeanor crime. Hospitals across Oregon need to add 1,000 beds to their current stock of um, about 6,600 to handle the surge of those infected by the COVID-19 through the 11th of April. And slowing down the spread of the disease is essential, the governor said. If cases continue to surge, we will not be able to save everyone, according to the state and uh, chief medical officer. The number of cases of infected Oregonians is expected to double every six days. And with a new limit on gatherings, the state will consider whether reopening schools will be foreseeable. Now the state expects 580,000 students to return to class on the 1st of April. Well, this is certainly a fast-developing story, and uh, will be changing, no doubt, um, within the very short period of time. But that's what the governor announced earlier today. So make note uh, of that. Uh, meanwhile, um, we've been encouraged to flatten the curve. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what that means, uh, what it has to do with minimizing the growth of the coronavirus in terms of the number of people 
reporting that they have um, the, the virus. As a global pandemic like the coronavirus, and again, a pandemic simply means that it is spreading from country to country despite efforts to prevent that from happening. Uh, and efforts uh, have failed to reduce the numbers. That's what a pandemic means. It doesn't mean necessarily that it is uh, uh, more serious than an uh, epidemic, for example. It, it primarily uh, represents the spread of the virus. Anyway, health officials around the world worry about hospitals being overwhelmed with patients needing intensive care, increasing mortality rates, and spreading the virus to a much larger population. So there are different versions of a chart called the flattened curve, And they've been shown um, by experts in Oregon and worldwide to help illustrate what kind of burden an overwhelmed hospital system could have. Now, it shows two curves. There's the red epidemic growth line. It represents a heightened number of cases over a short amount of time. And this occurs in an environment where where, um, social... Um, no social intervention has been uh, taken, has been applied. For example, if the population is simply going about their usual daily business, the virus is likely to infect more people in a shorter amount of time. The top of that peak is our, uh, are people who need intensive care or ventilators, and that's a concern whether or not there'll be sufficient numbers of them. We want to, fl- to flatten that peak and spread cases over time so when the most critically ill get sick, uh, they have access to resources, get a better shot at recovering from the virus. This is according to Multnomah County's health officer explaining this week. Well, the second line of this uh, flattened pattern uh, that we're hearing about shows the number of cases with social distancing implemented during the early stages of the virus. And that's where we are now. Now, this slows the growth of the epidemic and puts a lot less stress on the healthcare system, lowering the mortality rate. Now, a good example of what social distancing can do to an epidemic growth is what two American cities chose to do. In the um, during the 1918 um, influenza pandemic, Philadelphia went on with uh, holding large social gatherings while the city of St. Louis did not. And the the difference in the uh, impact on the population was dramatic. We want to be uh, more like St. Louis, where social gatherings uh, were uh, not permitted. Now, as more people test positive for the coronavirus or COVID-19, the Oregon Health Authority has released more information about those people who have been impacted. As of Sunday afternoon, there have been a total of 39 people in the state of Oregon to test positive for COVID-19. Those positive tests are spread around 12 counties. There have been 800 people tested in Oregon with 579 testing negative and 182 tests still pending. There are 355 people being monitored at present. One person in Oregon has died. He was a 70-year-old man in Multnomah County with underlying health conditions, according to the Oregon Health Authority. Some more information. In Clackamas County, there is one um, a positive test, Deschutes County 4, Douglas 1, Jackson County 2, Klamath 1, Lynn County 10, Marion County 2, Multnomah County 1. We're talking about positive tests. Um, Multnomah County 1, Polk County 1, Umatilla 2, uh, Washington County 13, and Yamhill County 1. Of those who have been tested positive, one was 17 or younger, 3, 18 to 24, 1, 25 to 34, uh, 10, 35 to 54, and uh, of uh, the 55 and older, 24 have tested positive. Uh, so, again, you are most vulnerable if you are over 60 uh, or if you have an underlying condition. There have been 13 hospitalized in the state of Oregon. Uh, 24 have not, and there are two that are unclear at this point. And uh, of those who have um, tested, um, the vast majority did not engage in international travel. 
Now, we're going to take a look at what's happening in Washington as well. I do need to take in just a moment, but King County has the most deaths and confirmed cases of the coronavirus in the United States. There are 42 deaths from the coronavirus in Washington state, according to the Washington State Department of Health. We'll tell you more about that when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the COVID virus here in the Pacific Northwest, namely Oregon and Washington. As mentioned, King County is the most deaths and confirmed cases of the virus in the U.S. There are 42 deaths from the coronavirus in Washington state, according to the Department of Health in Washington. Overall, there are 769 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the state of Washington, which includes the number of deaths. Uh, There are 9,451 tests that have come back negative, and that uh, gives us some perspective. The majority of the deaths are linked to the coronavirus outbreak at Kirkland's Life Care Center Nursing Home. Uh, King 5 provided some specific information about uh, each person, which you can find online, and that's rather interesting. According to age, for example, there are only a couple of people who are in their 50s, a few in their 60s, most between 70 and 90 who are impacted by the COVID virus uh, and whose lives were ended. Well, King County is reporting at least 488 total cases. The majority of cases stemmed from that outbreak, as I mentioned, from Life Care Center Nursing Home in Kirkland. Um, Snohomish County has uh, had four deaths, Grant County one, Pierce County 26. Clark County has three cases. Um, I should say Pierce County has uh, 26 cases. Columbia County has one case, uh, Grays Harbor County one case, Island County, um, six cases. Jefferson has one. Clatsop County, three. Um, I don't even know how to pronounce Katatis County in Washington. I've never said that in my life as a Pacific Northwesterner. Three cases there. Lincoln County, one case. Skagit County uh, has four cases. Spokane, three. Thurston, three. Uh, Whatcom County, uh, two cases. Yakima County, four. Um, some unassigned counties, 104, when there are new cases of coronavirus, labs assign those cases to a county, and the counties in the Department of Health will then determine the appropriate county of jurisdiction, leaving them unassigned when they're first reported. So um, there are 104 that have yet to be assigned. Also, the president issued the Coronavirus Guidelines for America. Uh, They said that we should listen to and follow the directions of our state and local authorities. And as mentioned, Governor Brown altered her um, uh, outline earlier today. Uh, And we're told that if you feel sick, sick rather, stay home. Do not go to work. Contact your medical provider by phone. If your children are sick, keep them at home. Do not send them to school, which, of course, is not an option now. Contact your medical provider. If someone in your household has tested positive for the coronavirus, keep the entire household at home. Do not go to work. Do not go to school. Contact your medical provider. If you are an older person, stay home and away from other people. If you are a person with a serious underlying health condition that can put uh, you at increased risk, for example, a condition that impairs your lung or heart function or weakens your immune system, stay home and away from other people. Um, And we're being encouraged to do our part to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Even if you're young or otherwise healthy, you're at risk. Um, and your activities can increase the risk for others. So what we are being asked to do may uh, be a benefit to others and not necessarily directly for ourselves. Uh, it's critical that you do your part to slow that spread of the coronavirus. Work on in, 
uh, or engage in schooling from home whenever possible. If you do work in a critical infrastructure industry as defined by the Department of Homeland Security, such as healthcare services, pharmaceutical, food supply, you can you have a special responsibility to maintain your normal schedule. You and your employers uh, should follow the CDC guidelines to protect your health at work. Avoid social gatherings in groups of more than 10. Now, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the governor of the state of Oregon has given the number 25. Groups of 25 or more are not permitted, and it's a misdemeanor crime, according to the governor. I need to look into that. But anyway, 25 or more restaurants uh, will be closing in the state of Oregon, and I'm not sure what time that begins, but takeouts and to-go are permitted. Uh, Avoid eating, drinking at bars, restaurants, and food courts. Use drive-through pickup or delivery options. Avoid discretionary travel, shopping trips, and social visits. Do not visit nursing homes or retirement or long-term care facilities unless to provide critical assistance. And practice good hygiene. Once again, what that means in this context, wash your hands, especially after touching any frequently used item or surface. Avoid touching your face, sneeze or cough into a tissue or the inside of your elbow, Disinfect frequently uh, frequently used items and services as much as possible. It might seem redundant, but again, it's not just for your health's sake. It's for the health of others you may come in contact with. We also learned uh, today that containment measures are being implemented by the U.S. or in the U.S. and throughout the globe to limit the spread of the virus, but only a vaccine can prevent people from getting sick Uh, From the virus, roughly 35 companies and academic institutions are currently rushing to create a vaccine and at least four have tested it on animals. Moderna, a biotech company in Massachusetts, has already shipped the first batches of COVID-19 vaccine to the U.S. National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Unless we think that this is this means a vaccine is going to be here short term, that is not what it means. These have to be tested thoroughly before they're made available to the general public. And we're being told that will likely be within a year, sometime around this time next year when the virus uh, crops up again. It was said to be ready for human trials in April, but the first patient will receive an experiment dose, experimental dose on Monday. Uh, and we saw images of that earlier in the day. The trials will be held at Kaiser Permanente Washington Health Research Institute in Seattle. Testing will involve 45 young, healthy volunteers, and it uses Moderna's, um, well, a vaccine uh, mRNA-1273, if that means anything to you. Well, unlike a normal vaccine, RNA vaccines work by introducing an mRNA uh, sequence, the module which uh, tells cells what to build, which is coded for a disease-specific antigen once produced within the body. The antigen is recognized by the immune system, preparing it to fight the real thing, according to the University of Cambridge. Well, the goal of the trial is to make sure the vaccine shows no worrisome side effects before researchers begin larger tests and participants can't get infected from the shots. Well, the speed in getting to this part of the process was assisted by scientists in China who were able to uncover the virus's genome sequence uh, called SARS-CoV-2, which they shared back in early January. That step has allowed researchers to grow the virus and study how it impacts the body. It was also assisted by the knowledge that flu is generally considered the biggest pandemic risk, according to The Guardian. Well, scientists have been working on uh, prototype pathogens following the SARS and MERS epidemics in previous years. The speed with which we have... Um, uh, produce these candidates builds very much on the investment in understanding how to develop vaccines for other coronaviruses. And this is a um, a particular coronavirus. 
um, work to help develop vaccines for those viruses was shelved after their outbreaks were contained, but it's now uh, being looked at again. The Moderna vaccine was also built from earlier work uh, on the MERS virus, according to the paper. Still, clinical trials are a lengthy process that will take over a year to make sure the virus is safe and works. The patients who are being tested with the Moderna vaccine during trials will be closely monitored for about a year. After that, the distribution of the virus to the necessary populations will take a good bit of time. Getting a vaccine that's proven to be safe and effective in humans takes uh, one at best almost a third of the way to what's needed for a global immunization policy. According to a global health expert, virus biology and vaccine technology could be the limiting factors, but politics and economics are far more likely to be the barrier to immunization. While President Trump has vowed a vaccine will be ready come election time in November, the uh, World Health Organization has estimated a vaccine will be ready within 18 months. Even if initial safety tests go well, you're talking about a year or, uh, or more, uh, before any vaccine would be ready for widespread use. So we're not looking for a vaccine in the short term. So that's sort of an overview of just the last uh, couple of days. And in the case of the state of Oregon over the last uh, half an hour or so, taking a look at some of the headlines from uh, earlier in the day, it was uh, the week that changed everything. Federal, state and local governments in the past 72 hours had taken unprecedented steps to try to slow the coronavirus spread and bolster small businesses, first responders and hospitals that prepare for an influx of patients exhibiting serious symptoms. Well, Newt Gingrich, the former House Speaker who is spending time, uh, was spending some time in Italy, wrote in Newsweek that the U.S. should plan for a worst-case pandemic. He called for a unified effort with a kind of intensity of implementation which served us so well in World War II. President Trump at a news conference on Sunday said the U.S. is studying how countries effectively manage the outbreak. South Korea and China are two countries praised for their efforts. Italy, which is, uh, has a large elderly population, is considered at this point to be a cautionary tale. The outbreak of COVID-19 has sickened more than 162,000 people worldwide, has left more than 6,000 dead. Uh, with thousands of new cases confirmed each day. The death toll in the United States climbed to 68, while infections passed 3,200. West Virginia is the only state without a confirmed case thus far. Americans have been dramatic, uh, have, have seen some dramatic steps taken to affect their everyday lives from reduced hours at work, new concerns for an elderly relative or an urgent need for child care. But the country has also seen measures that affect our national identity. NBA, NHL, MLB, preseason, NCAA, PGA seasons have all been suspended. The Statue of Liberty, 9-11 Memorial and Ellis Island are closed to the public effective immediately. There's going to be an emergency meeting to discuss the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. The U.S. Capitol will Cease all public tours. Walt Disney World theme parks and Santa Monica Pier in Los Angeles will also close. Illinois, Ohio, Massachusetts, Washington State and New York City are among the places that ordered bars to close and restaurants to stop dine-in service. Takeout and delivery will still be allowed. That changed today for Oregon. And the president on Sunday worked to calm Americans who've seen their schools closed and grocery stores emptied. He said these grocery stores will remain open. The National Security Council took to Twitter late Sunday to deny rumors of a national quarantine. We'll continue to take a look at some of the headlines when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, where we are practicing social distancing. Clark is in his studio. I'm in mine. 
We're winding through some of the uh, news headlines from over the last couple of days. I should also mention that later on in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with David Taylor. He is the author of Open and and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life. The book is published by Nelson, and he'll join us uh, in the next hour. Well, do not underestimate the challenge the Senate could face passing this bill. Those were the words of a senior Republican source about how tough the path may be for the Senate to align with the House of Representatives and approve a massive coronavirus measure. There's one school of thought that the Senate could simply take up the House bill and pass it on the spot. That's not going to happen. But frankly, the course is much, much harder than that. In fact, there's uh, there's some technical uh, problems in the drafting of the coronavirus legislation that requires the House to pass the bill again, perhaps with a skeleton staff late this week. We'll see what happens. And other coronavirus developments, the biotech company is shipping the first batch of coronavirus vaccine to a test to be tested on humans. Again, that's going to begin a process that takes about a year to a year and a half. New York City is closing movie theaters, entertainment venues uh, due to the coronavirus. And California's Governor Gavin Newsom has called for bars, wineries to close, people over 65 to stay home. Dow futures tumbled 1,000 points, but it gets worse. We'll tell you about that later. After the Fed took emergency action on interest rates and the White House opened... uh, A third relief bill as the coronavirus hit travel industries. Coronavirus, everything you need to know, can be found online in a variety of sources as well. Well, a Democratic debate that was uh, tamed from the outset by the coronavirus-related precautions nevertheless produced fireworks on Sunday night as Bernie Sanders repeatedly attacked Joe Biden's lengthy record and spurned the presidential primary frontrunner's attempt to win over him and his base by adopting liberal platforms. Biden, meanwhile, bristled at Sanders' transparent attempt to use the coronavirus pandemic to renew his call for Medicare for all, saying people are looking for results, not revolution. But the Vermont senator was notably more aggressive, hitting his rival in their first one-on-one debate over everything from super PAC support to his history on Social Security. Their first one-on-one standoff represented perhaps Sanders' last moment to alter the trajectory of Biden's Frontrunner campaign ahead of another round of primaries that could see the Vermont senator fall further behind in the delegate count, although several of them have now been postponed. We'll tell you more about that uh, as well. Meanwhile, the former vice president is essentially looking for a peace accord as the party establishment aims to avoid a drawn out and bruising primary battle. Um, reminiscent of 2016. Some other developments from Sunday's debate. Sanders uh, confuses the coronavirus for Ebola and Biden botches swine flu reference. And the former vice president commits uh, to naming a female running mate if nominated. Hmm. Well, the CDC has urged halting gatherings of 50 people or more. The president calls on Americans to cease hoarding food and supplies. Do you have enough toilet paper? And the feds are taking emergency steps to slash rates and ease bank rules. The House approved the coronavirus relief bill after urging the president in a 363 to 40 vote. And Georgia has joined Louisiana in delaying presidential primaries over the coronavirus fears. Florida still holding theirs, however. The media has downplayed the swine flu outbreak under Obama, and Trump is considering full pardons for the former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Uh, Former Vice President Joe Biden pledged to pick a woman to be his uh, running mate, and Bill Gates has left the Microsoft board. And on this day in history, 1802, President Thomas Jefferson signs a measure authorizing the establishment of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York. 1926, rocket science pioneer Robert Goddard, he successfully tests the first liquid-fueled rocket at his um, Aunt Effie's farm in Auburn, Massachusetts. 
Now, my grandmother's name was Effie, and all my cousins called her Aunt Effie. I kind of like that. On this day in history, 1945, during World War II, American forces declare they have secured Iwo Jima, although pockets of Japanese resistance remained. 1964, President Lyndon Johnson, he sends Congress the Economic Opportunity Act of 1964 as part of his war on poverty. The measure would be passed by Congress and signed by Johnson that following August. On this day in history, 1968, Senator Robert F. Kennedy, he announces his candidacy for the Democratic presidential nomination. And in 2014, Crimeans vote to leave Ukraine and join Russia, overwhelmingly approving a referendum that sought to unite the strategically important Black Sea region with the country it was part of for some 250 years. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, an ailing Aretha Franklin cancels two upcoming concerts, saying a doctor told her to stay off the road and to rest completely for at least two months. Franklin would die five months later from pancreatic cancer. Well, a lot going on. Of course, the headlines are dominated by the coronavirus and changes that have been made in the uh, short term uh, to deal with uh, this pandemic. Uh, The National Economic Council director, Larry Kudlow, on investing the stock points out that the Dow dropped 2,999 points on where the coronavirus crisis could extend until August. Uh, Very Fickle may not be the right word, but the U.S. equity markets tumbled on Monday with selling accelerating during the final hours of trading as the coronavirus task force updated the nation on the crisis. In response to a question, President Trump said the crisis could extend until August. The Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped nearly 3,000 points, or nearly 13 percent, the worst drop on record. This is the Dow's third consecutive move in uh, in either direction of 9% or more, the longest streak since October of 29, as uh, tracked by the Dow Jones Market Data Group. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ Composite also lost around 12%. Trading was halted at 15 minutes short after the opening bell due to S&P, 5, S&P 500's decline of more than 7%. The so-called fear gauge uh, index uh, hit a record high of a reading over 82. Investors also shrugged off the Federal Reserve's emergency action to combat the economic harm caused by the new coronavirus outbreak. And millions of Americans hold up at homes against the coronavirus on Monday, with many of them thrown out of work until further notice as authorities tighten the epic clampdown and the list of businesses forced to close across the U.S. extended to restaurants, bars, gyms, and casinos. With the U.S. economy shuttered to a halt, the Dow Jones Industrial Average plummeted um, 13% to the biggest one-day fall in decades. The rapid work stoppage had Americans fretting about their jobs and their savings, threatened to overwhelm unemployment benefit programs and heighten fears the U.S. is sliding into recession. The number of infections in the U.S. climbed to about 3,800, with at least 70 deaths, nearly two-thirds of them in hard-hit Washington state. Officials in six San Francisco Bay Area counties issued a shelter-in-place order affecting nearly 7 million people, requiring most residents to stay inside and venture out only for necessities for three weeks, the most drastic measure taken yet in the U.S. to curb the spread of the virus. The most important thing you can do is remain home as much as possible. The mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, said on Twitter, there's no need to rush out for food or supplies as these stores will remain open. Well, the shutdowns touched every corner of the country. Blackjack dealers in Las Vegas, theme park workers in Orlando, Florida, restaurant and bar employees nationwide, winery workers in California. At least eight states called on all bars and restaurants to close at least part of the day. Casinos shut down in New Jersey. One 29-year-old bartender uh, at Pike's Peak Market in 
uh, in Seattle, one of the city's uh, biggest tourist attractions, shut down early so he could go home and start figuring out unemployment, food stamps, really whatever the next step might be. And that's a conversation being had in households all across the country. About 82 million people or three-fifths of the U.S. workforce are hourly employees. Many of them won't get paid if they don't work. For those in that category, that includes restaurants, hotels, amusement parks, casino workers. Just one-third have access to paid sick leave, according to Wells Fargo. A former economic advisor to the president said on CNN that the odds of a global recession are close to 100 percent right now and predicted the U.S. could lose about one million jobs in April. If that happens, you're looking at one of the biggest negative jobs numbers that we've ever seen, he said. Now, of course, that would hopefully reverse itself quickly if we get ahead of the curve on this whole thing. Well, the economy appears to be uh, decelerating at as uh, much uh, faster pace than in 2008 during that financial crisis. If Hassett's uh, forecast of job losses is accurate, that could uh, be just two months after the government reported a healthy gain of 273,000 jobs. This is like an avalanche. It's all happening at once. Well, with schools shut down for tens of millions of children, parents begin using plans that included um, flashcards, online learning, dog walks, creative uh, creativity sessions. Many did this while uh, juggling work conference calls, uh, emails, memos. Others scrambled to find childcare, and it's been a challenge all the way around. The shutdowns were especially devastating for the many artists and service industry workers in New York who rely on the nightlife and uh, live paycheck to paycheck. But that will change. Um, there's some discussion about giving uh, large chunks of money to. Um, Americans whose income will be lost as a consequence of this uh, sheltering in place, but that is yet to be decided. This is a dramatic shift for the country, and while it poses a tremendous amount of fear, it also presents a tremendous opportunity for those who care about their neighbor to express it in ways that perhaps they might not feel compelled to in the past. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a, a police department here in the state of Oregon is urging people that if they've run out of toilet paper, it's not worth calling 911. Apparently they had to say that because people have been calling 911 because they've run out of toilet paper. Well, the Newport Police Department posted the surprising message on its Facebook page. Shoppers across the country have flocked to supermarkets to stock up on supplies with the pandemic that um, put much of the world on edge. It's hard to believe that we even have to post this. Do not call 911 just because you ran out of toilet paper. You will survive without our assistance. That's from the uh, Newport Police Department. Well, the department then offered numerous alternatives of people I can't find their favorite soft, ultra-plush, two-ply, citrus-scented tissue. (laughs) There are always alternatives to toilet paper. Grocery receipts, newspaper, cloth rags, lace, cotton balls, and their empty toilet paper rolls sitting on the holder right now, the message read. Plus, there are a variety of leaves you can safely use. Mother Earth News Magazine will tell you how to make your own uh, wipes using 15 different leaves. And when all else fails, uh, you have magazine pages. Start saving those uh, catalogs you get in the mail that you usually toss in the recycling bin. Be resourceful. Be patient. There is a TP shortage. This too shall pass. Just don't call 911. We cannot bring you toilet paper. 
I lived in Newport for many years, yeah. and that doesn't really surprise me that this was a problem. <laughs> oh, dear. But I know that they also suggested in uh, that same post that, you know, we're a seaside community. There's seawater, there's rope, and there's some ways that things used to be done before <laughs> as far as cleaning yourself up. So just don't call the police. Yeah, calling 911. Well, many aspects of American life have been reordered as the country has dealt with trying to curb the spread of the coronavirus over the past, uh, past week. Rather, Images of empty shelves in grocery stores, which we have been reassured will be stocked up again, have become a common sight as people rush to stock up on food and cleaning supplies. Some stores have started implementing sales restrictions of only limited number of items per person to try to... Uh, Stop this impulse we have to make sure that me and my own have what we need and perhaps our neighbor won't. And then there's this. As stupidity always rises to the surface, a woman has been slammed on social media for an alleged coronavirus challenge. Now, you know, online there are these challenges. You do something stupid, then you video yourself doing it and people are all aga. Well, her coronavirus challenge video that has uh, gone viral is one we wouldn't recommend. Uh, Twice... um, Dr. Phil Guest, an accused clout chaser on social media, has recently gone viral for a bizarre stunt that's getting widely criticized during the global coronavirus pandemic, which is responsible for 68 deaths and at least 3,700 positive cases in the U.S. alone. In the video, which was originally shared on TikTok, the 22-year-old, now catch that, 22-year-old, that's a mature adult, well, at least an adult, Aspiring influencer from Miami is seen licking a toilet seat, allegedly while on a, an airplane in a bathroom. Please retweet this so people can know how to properly be sanitary on the airplane, she captioned the six-second clip. I'm having a hard time following the logic. Maybe you get it. Uh, why? Why would I get it? <laughs> no, 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 I don't mean you. I just mean generally. <laughs> you know, um, I, airplanes are some of the dirtiest places around. I'm... Well, the extent to which some people will go in order to be seen and heard and to, as she put it, influence. I mean, assuming you want to be an influencer, which she has stated she wants to be, you're suggesting that people do what you do. You're influencing their behavior. This is the most ridiculous thing. And she's 22 years old. Anyway, just two examples of ridiculous things that people are doing uh, during the season where there's a need for serious measures to be taken. I think levity is certainly appropriate. We have to laugh our way through what's a very difficult time, more difficult for some than others. Uh, but the truth is Congress has shut down the Capitol and congressional offices uh, to the public schools, colleges, universities have closed. Even major businesses like Capital One are asking employees to stay home and telecommute. We're making arrangements here should the uh, the need uh, be that we could stay on the air. There are lessons to be learned from places like Italy, where currently the healthcare system is overwhelmed because the coronavirus is spreading faster than the system's capacity to handle the influx of patients. Right now, we're trying to avoid that happening here. Well, the facts are indisputable. Social distancing is one of the primary ways to slow the trajectory of the spread of the coronavirus, reducing the number of active cases at any given time. Now, this will slow the process. It may not end the process, but that will give healthcare providers the opportunity and the space they need to prepare to treat those who um, are seriously impacted by the virus. Now, slowing that trajectory spreads the case, uh, the cases rather, out over time. It gives hospitals and medical personnel the capacity to handle them, and it slows the trajectory. It also buys time for scientists to develop a vaccine, get more people vaccinated before they contract the disease. 
or the virus. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who we've heard from quite often in this whole thing, he's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He pointed out recently the need for social distancing when he told members of Congress that the number of cases will get worse, but how much worse will depend on our ability to contain and mitigate within our own country. Some ask why these um, actions are being taken when we don't take uh, similar actions for the seasonal flu that strikes millions of Americans every year. Well, the answer is that COVID-19, the disease caused by the coronavirus, appears to be deadlier and spread quicker, and none of us has the antibodies to resist it. Fauci and other um, health officials, they estimate that the COVID-19 death rate in the United States is likely somewhere around 1%. The flu has a mortality rate of 0.1%, has a mortality rate, uh, or rather COVID-19 has a mortality rate of uh, 10 times that. That's the reason uh, he wanted to emphasize we have to stay ahead of the game and prevent this. And social distancing is one way to do that effectively. In addition to the higher death rate, the coronavirus appears to be more infectious than the flu. With a seasonal flu, a single infected person will infect another 1.3 people. But according to the Journal of the American Medical Association, early estimates point to a single person with the coronavirus infecting another two to three people. Now, that may seem insignificant until you multiply that out. Well, based on those numbers, the potential for more than double the infection rate and 10 times the death rate of the flu, the coronavirus could result in a horrific number of deaths in the United States this year if uh, mitigation efforts aren't introduced immediately. And we are trying to follow those now. Or rather than an overreaction, social distancing and These other measures are prudent, and rather than instilling fear, they should bring some sense of relief to the American people because positive measures are being taken, fewer people may become infected, and we're working toward ensuring that the American health system has the capacity to handle new cases when they arise. Well, mitigation measures like postponing conferences and conventions, as I mentioned earlier today, two events I was planning on uh, participating in in the next month and a half have been canceled, one postponed. Canceling sporting events, having employees work from home may bring a temporary but painful disruption to the economy, but that's a relatively small price to to pay to save the lives of many people in our country. So we have the capacity to make a significant difference to others. Uh, We would do well to heed the advice of the British government that was offered a fearful national um, uh, record under much worse circumstances during World War II, and that is keep calm and carry on. Today, carrying on means following the advice of the president and our nation's leading healthcare professionals. It means living with uh, living our lives rather while at the same time part- practicing responsible social interaction. That's not panicking. That's uh, that's doing your civic duty to help protect yourself, your family and your fellow Americans, avoiding stupid stunts that put you and others at risk. Well, as I mentioned earlier, a 70-year-old US military veteran from Multnomah County Uh, has become the first patient in the state of Oregon to die of coronavirus. The Oregon Health Advisory confirmed on Saturday the man who was hospitalized at the Portland Veterans Affairs Medical Center had underlying health conditions. And while we know we uh, would arrive at this day at some point, it doesn't lessen the impact. Patrick Allen, who was the uh, Oregon Health Authority uh, director, said in a statement, Our thoughts and deepest sympathy are with the family of this individual who honorably served this country. The man tested positive on the 10th of March in a likely case of community spread. He hadn't traveled out of the country recently or come into contact with anyone known to have the virus. And although we knew this day would come, it has now come, the governor went on to say, it does not make it any easier. 
She said the loss of one life to this disease is too many. Already, thousands around the world have felt the pain that casts its shadow over one family here in Oregon. His case also had no link to others at the Oregon Veterans Home in Lebanon, the report said. It's a sobering reminder that this virus is in our community and can be serious for older people and those with underlying conditions. So again, we would do well to take it seriously, if not for our own sake, for the sake of others. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic at the top of the hour. And David Taylor will join us in the next hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Eight minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Coming up later this hour, we'll hear from David Taylor, author of Open and Unafraid, the psalm as a guide to life. I didn't say that very well. I'm going to try that whole thing over. Open and Unafraid, the psalm, <laughs> the Psalms as a Guide to Life. The book is published by Nelson. He'll be with us in our next segment. Well, the spreading coronavirus outbreak has shut down more and more of uh, American life, including schools, sporting events, bars, and now even elections. Multiple states have either announced that they are postponing their presidential primary elections due to concerns about the novel coronavirus or made clear they are considering doing just that. Uh, this comes as top election officials in Arizona, Florida, Ohio, and uh, Illinois issued a statement on Friday saying they will go on with their Tuesday, March 14th elections, writing Americans have participated in elections during challenging times in the past. We are confident that voters in our states can safely and securely cast their ballots in this election. But Sunday night, in an interview after the CNN presidential debate that's held... uh, was held rather in a closed off studio rather than a hall with a live audience. Presidential candidates, uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and uh, former Vice President uh, Biden, uh, hinted that it could be worth moving primary elections to protect against the virus, says um, uh, Sanders, Mr. Sanders, I would hope that governors listen to the public health experts and what they are saying. We don't want gatherings of more than 50 people. I'm thinking about some of the elderly people sitting behind the desks, registering people and doing all that stuff. Does that make sense? I'm not sure it does. Well, here are the states that already have uh, announced they're putting off their presidential primaries. That includes Louisiana. They became the first state to postpone a primary or caucus on Friday with Governor um, John Bell Edwards signing an executive order to move the uh, uh, the election or the primary until the 4th of April, or rather from the 4th of April to late June. Uh, then Georgia. Georgia also moved its election from the 24th of this month to May the 19th. Governor Brian Kemp declared a state of emergency there. And in Puerto Rico, though it's not a state, Puerto Rico holds primaries for both parties. Republican primary already took place on the 8th of March, but the Puerto Rico Democratic Party last week requested that the state delay its uh, Democratic primary, which is scheduled for the 29th. Uh, My understanding is it hasn't yet been uh, rescheduled, but this is an unpredictable day-by-day situation, they say. The Spanish-language news site El Nuevo Dia uh, reported that the state Senate on Tuesday will consider the legislation required to put the election off until the 26th of April. Uh, Meanwhile, governors in the nation's largest metro areas uh, have collected collectively decided to shutter bars, restaurants, movie theaters in an attempt to stem the um, growing number of, uh, of cases. The New York, New Jersey, Connecticut said that they're working to limit crowd capacities there. And the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, announced on Monday that it's postponing oral arguments for its March session due to concern over the coronavirus outbreak as well, marking the first health crisis related delay for such proceedings since the Spanish flu a century ago. Those arguments include cases scheduled to come before 
before the court the 23rd and 25th, as well as the 30th of March through the 1st of April. A press release from the high court said the justices will hold their regular conference on Friday, issue their order list on Monday, though the release said some justices may participate remotely by phone. They would certainly be many of them, if not all, in the high risk, at least age category Uh, not necessarily uh, conditions that would make them more vulnerable. Well, written at the dawn of the uh, Cold War, C.S. Lewis's 1948 book on living in an atomic age is still relevant. Some of the key excerpts, which I'll repeat at the end of the program, I thought might be helpful to us today as we consider the COVID virus and the impact it's uh, having on our community. He wrote at the time, again, this is on the dawn of the Cold War in 1948. It was a book on living in an atomic age. He wrote, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we going to live in in an atomic age? I am tempted to say why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railroad Uh, accidents and age of motor accidents, again, written in 1948. In other words, he goes on, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love are already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors and aesthetics, but we uh, have uh, that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristles uh, with such chances and which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. Again, C.S. Lewis writes, if we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddling together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. End quote. Now, again, this is C.S. Lewis on the dawn of the uh, nuclear age where an atomic bomb was a, uh, a legitimate threat. Well, to reframe the last paragraph with the current COVID-19 pandemic... The Patriot Post suggests this. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by a virus, let that virus, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, but with social distancing in the near term to slow it down. Teaching remotely, reading, listening to music on our stereos, bathing the children, exercising at home, chatting to our friends over a video conference, not huddling together like frightened sheep and thinking about uh, viruses. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. Some advice from C.S. Lewis Day that might be applied to our own. Now, coming up, we're going to talk with David Taylor. He's the author of Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, back in 2016, my next guest, David Taylor, Assistant Professor of Theology and Culture at Fuller Theological Seminary, released a short film of author Eugene Peterson, who's known by many for his contemporary language Bible translation, The Message, and internationally renowned musician and philanthropist Bono, discussing how the Psalms had shaped their work, helping them make sense of life, art, suffering, and mortality. With more than one million views on YouTube, the Psalms became a global sensation, helping people encounter God as he is presented in the Psalms, a God of redemption, of justice, goodness, mercy, and love. Well, a new book from David Taylor, opened and unafraid, the Psalms as a guide to life, goes even further, showing us how the Psalms became the guide to living faithfully. Open and unafraid contains a forward from Peterson and an afterward from Bono. The Psalms have been central to God's people for millennia, Mr. Taylor says. In reading them, we discover that we are never alone in our joys, sorrows, angers, doubts, or thanksgivings. In them, we learn about prayer and poetry, honesty and community, justice and enemies, life and death, about nations and creation. In Open and Unafraid, his latest book, his goal is to show how to read the Psalms in a fresh, life-giving way and so access the bottomless resource for life that they provide. Well, David Taylor is the author of several books, including the most recent glimpse, uh, glimpses rather of the new creation, worship, and the formative power of arts. He has published articles in a wide variety of theological and popular publications, The Washington Post, Christianity Today, Image Journal, Christ and Pop Culture, and many others. He serves on the advisory board for Duke Initiatives in Theology and the Arts, as well as InterVarsity Press Academic Series, Studies in Theology and the Arts. A pastor for 10 years in Austin, Texas, he has led lectured widely on the arts from Thailand to South Africa. Today, he joins us to talk about his book, Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, let's, uh, you begin in the introduction, um, uh, quoting uh, Denise Hopkins, a journey through the Psalms is the journey of the life of faith. Talk a little bit about the Psalms and why they have been so central to the life of faith for many believers and why this is the central theme of your book. Well, you know, the Psalms were certainly Israel's primary fundamental worship book, prayer book, hymn book. They were Jesus' own prayer book. They were the prayer book for the early disciples, uh, followers of Jesus. And for virtually 2,000 years, they have functioned as a primary source for praying to God and and hearing from God. And uh, for that reason, Christians have felt that um, they are uh, a resource that we should take advantage of, uh, both in- intentionally um, and comprehensively. And uh, one of the things that I hope to convey to the book is uh, that they're accessible to everyone, and everyone can can take advantage of them in the way that Christians have for 2,000 years. You begin by telling the story of being a student in 1996 at Regent College, a, a seminary in uh, Victoria, British Columbia, and Eugene Peterson is your teacher. The, the course is titled Biblical Spirituality, and the course was uh, was wonderful, but you were somewhat dissatisfied, and he gave you some advice at the end of that course. Can you tell us a little bit of that story and the advice that was given that really shaped your view of the Psalms and certainly uh, the writing of this book? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Eugene Peterson was known for being somebody who rarely gave uh, advice, practicals, how-tos. And so we had sat in this remarkable course in which he began with the book of Genesis and took us to the end and wove into his lectures uh, 
theology and history and poetry and literature, and it was remarkable. It was inspiring, but at no point did he tell us what we could do practically. And so at the very last class, at the very last moment, I realized he was going to leave us without any help. So I raised my hand and I said, Dr. Peterson, could you please tell us just one thing, one thing that we could do? He thought about it for a moment. And after a longish moment, he answered in his typically quiet, gravelly voice, David, read Psalm 1 tomorrow morning, and the next day read Psalm 2, and the day after that read Psalm 3, and get to the end after 150 days and start over. Thank you, and have a good night. <laughs> and that's what I did. Uh, I The next day, I woke up and I read Psalm 1 for the next 150 days. I read my way through the Psalter, and then I started over, and I did that for several years. And it indelibly shaped my, my mind, my heart, my imagination, the way I perceive God, myself, and the world. And it's a gift that I, I treasure, that advice. Now, one of the things that you write is that uh, you wanted your audiences of the film to encounter the God of the Psalms as a God of healing, justice, grace, goodness, holiness, mercy, and love. And your second goal was that people might be inspired to read or pray the Psalms for themselves as a way to understand uh, why Christians uh, have read the Psalms and found them to be so singularly formative uh, to their faith. Your your hope remains the same for the book. Why the book to follow the the film? What does the book provide that the film had not? Well, over the years, I've discovered that a lot of Christians read the Psalms either not at all or in piecemeal or occasional fashion and quickly become intimidated by the book as a whole. Uh, obviously, you have passages like Psalm 23, which is a familiar and beloved mm-hmm. one, but then you run into Psalm 119, which is this, this you know, extraordinarily long, seemingly tedious psalm, or you encounter the seeming cruelty of Psalm 137. And so while I think people responded very positively to the film, there was still a question of how do I actually get into reading the psalms? How do I get a sense of the landscape? Where do I start? How do I sustain myself? What are the resources that will help me understand how the Psalms, say, work as prayer, that they are prayers, but I think it's helpful to understand how they do prayer and how the Psalter is arranged in a very intentional way with Psalm 1 and 2, for example, functioning as a frame to basically set the reader up to know what to do with the rest of the Psalms. So I'm hoping to provide sort of this helicopter perspective of Mm -hmm. the landscape, but also a perspective of the trees and as they kind of move along from beginning to end, that people would go and feel encouraged and edified and inspired to keep going. You make very clear, and I appreciated that, this book is not an introduction to the Psalms. It doesn't address matters such as questions of authorship, the original liturgical use of the Psalms, or the variety of forms of uh, Psalms. It doesn't presume to settle the debates of biblical scholars um, on the historical backdrop for certain Psalms, for example. But it does intend to draw us not only to what the psalmist writes, but to the one about whom the psalmist writes. Tell us what you hope that your readers will take away from this treatment of the psalms that draws us into God's Word, uh, to read it regularly, to find Him there. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things, again, I think when I looked at my own history of reading the psalms, I ended up seeing only one aspect of the character and nature of God in the psalms, and that was what my own, say, church tradition had emphasized. And one of the things that I found surprising, wonderfully surprising, but also challengingly surprising, was that the the God that the Psalms present to us is a God both who is Good Shepherd and God of angel armies, both 
a God of refuge and a just judge. And say my tradition, we didn't talk about justice very much. We certainly didn't talk about how justice and prayer were related. And yet that is central to the Psalms because it is central to the heart of God. And so my hope is that we that when people read the Psalms carefully, diligently, comprehensively over time, that they will come to know the fullness of the character of God and indeed fall in love with God afresh. Again, we're talking with David Taylor. He is the author most recently of Open and Unafraid, the Psalms as a Guide to Life. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with David Taylor. He is the author of Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life, the foreword by Eugene Peterson, and the afterword uh, by Bono. So it's uh, kind of an interesting start and finish uh, to the book. You start with a chapter uh, on the theme of honesty, um, and you argue that honesty is the only way that we can receive the greatest benefit from the Psalms. Uh, given the title of your book, Open and Unafraid, as we work our way through the Psalms, as you advise your readers to do, what should our approach be and what should we expect the consequence will be in terms of understanding more about uh, God, but also the concepts that you've, you've mentioned, justice and uh, all of those issues that we'll find there? Well, you know, Tim Keller calls the Psalms, the medicine chest of the heart. John Calvin called it the anatomy of the soul. Martin Luther called it the little Bible. And they're all getting at the same thing, which in the Psalms, you discover yourself, uh, all your faults and failures, all your successes, perhaps. You find this extraordinary length of lament Psalms, and then you, you find yourself headed towards praise Psalms. So everything that is truly and deeply human about us, you find there. But one of the things that I argue in the book is that the Psalms function like a kind of antidote to our primordial sin, which was to hide and to run away and to shut down and shut off others and God. And the Psalms are offered to us to enable us to be open and unafraid or, or vulnerable or truly porous with others. So you're exposed, but you're exposed always before the, the face of a gracious God, a God who meets us in steadfast love. And you're exposed in the presence of a community that chooses to be with you in this experience of having your life fully examined. Uh, that nothing, nothing escapes the, the searching gaze of God, as Psalm 139 puts it. But it enables us to be resilient and to be uh, courageous and more truly, deeply humble and generous in the world. And again, I think we see how Jesus himself says that the that the Psalms have been fulfilled in his own life. And so he, in a sense, is the true psalmist that walks out this vision of, of a life that the Psalms present to us from beginning to end. Now, in the book, you have certain themes that dominate each chapter. As we read through the Psalms, I think many of us believe the Psalms are just a series of random thoughts that aren't necessarily connected to one another. They, they're not necessarily connected to historical events. How do we approach the Psalms as, as we are attempting to draw nearer to God? And as I mentioned, you have a number of themes that are represented, uh, honesty and community and others. Um, is this a chronological approach to the Psalms? What might we expect as we decide to start with chapter one and then chapter two the next day and following? Right. Well, the argument that I make in the book uh, is that if you want to get the most out of the Psalms, you begin with honesty and you begin with community. 
You can't get the most out of Psalms if you're not truly willing to be truly vulnerable, profoundly vulnerable. But you can't be that way without a community that is with you. And that's what the Psalms model for us. And then I provide a few handholds on how the Psalms do prayer and how it does poetry and the historical perspective. And then I get to the emotional center of the Psalms with three chapters on, on sadness, anger, and joy as a way to, to center sort of this heart space that the Psalms are inviting us to, to set ourselves in this truly vulnerable place. And then I do a sequence of chapters on life and death and justice and enemies, nation, creation, as a way to say that the Psalms are interested in the very details and the particulars of our life, mm-hmm. but also interested in this large, as it were, creation, cosmic perspective that God is sovereign over all events in time and space as a way to see how small but how significant we are, as, say, Psalm 8 and Psalm 19 say. You conclude with a chapter that suggests that the Psalms invite us to pray the words of the Psalter with Jesus and in his name and in the company of those who follow in the way of of Jesus. Are the, the Psalms then designed for us to pray back to the one who inspired those Psalms and to whom uh, they were spoken and about whom they were written? Oh, yes. I mean, I would, I would certainly hope for uh, that this would be the outcome for us. And, and, and as I write, when we pray the Psalms with Jesus, it means at the very least that we find ourselves walking both prayerfully and faithfully on this way, this way everlasting with Jesus along with the help of the Spirit, reading and singing and praying the Psalms in the company of the faithful and the faithless, both the saints and the sinners. And, and I hope that we would find that to be a very hopeful place for each of us who, if we're somewhat self-aware, realize often we've very much struggled to remain faithful mm-hmm. in these ways. And what kind of tactical advice do you give for readers to better understand the Psalms and to use them, as you've suggested, in everyday life? Well, one of the things that I do, having been a pastor and knowing how hard it is sometimes just to be human in the world, we need some concrete ways of, of making the most of, of uh, spiritual resources. I, I have questions at the end of every chapter for discussion, either individuals or families or small groups. I have exercises at the end of the chapter to say, so what could you do um, to, to try on what it means to live and to say psalms of lament or psalms of praise. And then I end every chapter as well with a prayer. And my hope is that that would make it very concrete, very practical, very much a, I can now do something with these things that I have learned as a way to begin walking in this way everlasting. You um, make the point that the psalms are essential to the Christian life. What difference has that, uh, has your study of the psalms um, been personally uh, as you endeavor to follow Christ and to better understand the God of the Bible? Well, for starters, as I, I think I mentioned earlier, because of my broken, fallen tendencies, my instincts are often very much to hide mm-hmm. and to run away and to deny and to suppress. And and when I read the Psalms, they're just gently nudging me to remain open again, open and vulnerable, even with people with whom I am closest, of family members and friends, which some days is extraordinarily difficult. I write about a story of of my wife and I going through several miscarriages and how Psalm 22 helped give language um, to the incoherent feelings in our own hearts. Um, I've been recently meditating on on a psalm that's beloved by many, Psalm 23, uh, but seeing it in a fresh way after looking at it over a hundred times and seeing something new. And I think that's what the psalms offer all of us. If If you stay with it, if you keep meditating, chewing on it, new things come to light. And again, with the first words out of Psalm 23, it just dawned on me this week that 
the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is in fact what Adam and Eve did not trust that God would be for them, a shepherd who could truly take care of them. And so they chose to take care of themselves and how very much that is our universal story as human beings. And so for me, reckoning with that prayerfully, honestly, talking to Jesus, letting the Holy Spirit search my own hearts and inviting my wife, my closest friends, other family members to help me remain in this way open and and, and unafraid. Uh, I just wanted to ask you briefly about Bono. Um, He was featured in the film that I mentioned earlier, but also he does the afterword in the book. Um, Readers might be surprised to to know that he is very knowledgeable about the Psalms uh, and that they have been a central part of his uh, Christian faith and how it's inspired much of his um, his music. Can you talk a bit about how the two of you connected and uh, what Bono contributed to the film and now to the book? Yes, i uh, happy to. When I met him for the first time, when we filmed uh, this exchange um, with him and, and Eugene, I found him to be very gentle, very unassuming, very kind, very authentic. Uh, he wanted to know my name, my wife's name. He wanted to be each person on the film crew. And when he left, he, he said goodbye to everyone by name. He remembered them. So mm. there's a certain authenticity or integrity to his life that impressed me. The fact that he's been married to his wife for almost 40 years in an industry that just tends to wreck marriages. He's very faithful to his friends, friends of over 40 years. And when he was in high school, he had a very powerful experience of Jesus that has remained with him his entire life. And whatever you may think about maybe some of these theological ideas, he takes Jesus deadly seriously, profoundly seriously. And when we met to talk about the Psalms a second time in New York City, he had spent an hour with his chaplain talking out loud about the Psalms. He had spent an hour by himself praying and reading the Psalms. And so he was very much ready when we sat down to tell me all the things that he was excited about, the Psalms. And I found it very inspiring, mm-hmm. and, and, and I prayed with him. He prayed uh, with me, and uh, and again, there's just something very genuine, very much integrity through and through about who he is as a person. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I think your, your um, our listeners will as well. Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life. David Taylor, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Georgine. Appreciate it very much. Again, the foreword by Eugene Peterson and the afterword by Bono. So take note of that. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Robert Nash, author of Last Words, Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross. That will be uh, in the first hour of tomorrow's program. The book is published by New Growth Press. And then on Wednesday, we'll talk with John Ellis, The Breakdown of Higher Education, How It Happened, The Damage It Does, and What Can Be Done. The book is published by Encounter, and he will also be with us in the first hour of the program on Wednesday. On Thursday, we have our annual World Concern Radiothon, and we'll give you an opportunity to address the needs of those who are suffering from a famine that you're not reading or seeing much about, but is devastating parts of Africa. So we'll fill you in on that. I'll tell you a little more about it on Wednesday, but that's coming up on Thursday. And Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news, but we'll also uh, keep you up to date on the headlines. Well, of course, much of the headlines today are dominated by the coronavirus and the response to it, the national, the local, the state uh, response to the virus and what individuals and families can do. Uh, Earlier today, I received notice from several events that I was going to be participating in that they have either been canceled or postponed. 
uh, in effort to in an effort uh, to protect uh, people. I think for many of us, we might shrug our shoulders and think, oh, this all seems unnecessary. But if we care for our neighbor, it's important for us to do what we can to make sure we don't carry a virus that may not uh, harm us, but may harm others. Um, so we, we do so out of love and concern for other people. You wash your hands, you keep a safe distance, which can be extremely difficult. I attended a wedding this weekend, um, which for me was such a tremendous answer to de- decades of prayer. Uh, and I saw some old friends that I used to attend church with many years ago. We hadn't seen uh, each other for many years, and it was so difficult to try to maintain that um, that social distancing, we kind of laughed about it, but it was it was painful. Nonetheless, out of concern for one another, everyone asked, is it OK if I hug you or how do I approach? We were trying to be careful for one another and for those um, that we may come in contact with that it, uh, it might be harmful. In any case, I thought it was interesting um, uh, that C.S. Lewis had some wisdom that may be applicable to us today as we face and confront the, the dangers of the coronavirus. And again, while you might be a young, healthy person or a person who's not so young but healthy, um, those who have immune uh, compromised immune systems, those who are elderly, uh, we need to be thinking about what we're carrying and how that might impact others in our community. And they're trying to flatten that curve that represents the number of cases increasing across the country. Well, C.S. Lewis um, wrote in 1948 a book on living in an atomic age. It's still relevant. And one of the key excerpts that might help us in the dawn of the Cold War, it applied, and I think it may help us to think through issues today. He wrote, in one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why, uh, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, You and all whom you love are already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented, and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors and aesthetics, but we have that still. It is uh, pretty ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristles with such chances in which death itself was not a chance at all but a certainty." This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, again, this is C.S. Lewis writing uh, at the dawn of the Cold War in On Living in an Atomic Age, this is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, a microbe can do that, but um, they need not dominate our minds. To reframe that last paragraph amidst the current COVID-19 pandemic, This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by a virus, let that virus, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things, but with social distancing in the near term. 
to slow it down. Teaching remotely, reading, listening to music on our stereos, bathing the children, exercising at home, chatting to our friends over a video conference, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about viruses. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. Well, it was good advice at that time, and I think it's probably good advice for us now to put into perspective the challenges that life presents on a regular day, on a regular basis, and to um, choose to be men and women of faith. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not going to contract the virus because, well, in the world we're going to know uh, difficulty and challenge and tribulation, but we can be men and women of faith, praying for our neighbor, extending the love of Christ into our communities, and that's the best advice that we can give to one another. Isaiah 41.10 says this, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, if you have an eternal perspective, those words are extremely comforting. God has promised in his word to never leave or forsake us. So we know that whatever comes, we will not face that prospect alone. The uh, The message says it this way. Do not panic. I am with you. There's no need to fear, for I'm your God. I'll give you strength. I'll help you. I'll hold you steady. Keep a firm grip on you. Romans eight twenty eight, of course, uh, says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, that doesn't mean all things that come to us are good, but that in all things, God will work for the good of those um, who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we can take comfort and confidence in that. And finally, in John fourteen twenty seven, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now, he, he's writing about a peace that is not common to the culture. It's a peace that only comes by virtue of the Holy Spirit manifesting himself through us. It is a peace that surpasses all understanding. And for those of us who are pressed into God, we can experience that peace and be a tremendous um, help to our neighbors. Again, the message says it this way. I am telling you these things while I'm still living with you. The friend, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send at my request, will make everything plain to you. He will remind you of all the things I have told you. I'm leaving you well and whole. That's my parting gift to you. Peace. I don't leave you the way um, you're used to being left, feeling abandoned, bereft. So don't be upset. Don't be distraught. Do not be afraid. Do not be troubled. For God is with us and he is for us. And this is just the latest iteration of what um, human life on this planet has wrought. And uh, my prayer is that we will get through it, giving honor to God reaching out in love and wisdom toward our neighbor, being willing to make sacrifices that we may not feel like we should have to make, but in order to protect others, uh, we make them out of love uh, for others. And so we uh, don't attend this or that event. We wash our hands when we don't feel like it. We wash them longer than we might think is necessary or comfortable, but we do it for the sake of others. I'm, uh, as you know, taking care of my mom. She She's 89 years old. She lives with us, and I'm very concerned about... Um, Make, making sure that I'm not taking something home to her. As you know, many of the senior centers are not allowing visitors and they're being very careful. I was talking with my sister and her in-laws. They are uh, advised to stay in their room um, for the most part and they get their meals. Uh, but that's about the only time that they are in uh, groups where they could possibly contract 
the virus from others. We need to be careful. And my mom and I had a conversation this weekend about um, the fact that we're not going to be embracing as is common in our household. I've just decided uh, today that I'm going to start taking her temperature on a regular basis. She has a mild form of asthma and she has had a cough and continues to have a cough, but I want to monitor her very closely. I'm making sure that I'm washing my hands and, and very careful when I'm in her presence for that sake. So we can uh, be thoughtful of one another, make sure that seniors in your neighborhood are uh, getting the things that they need so they don't necessarily have to go out. Maybe you can pick up prescriptions or food or whatever they might need, but good time for us to extend the love of Christ into our community while at the same time practicing social distancing. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.